Before we begin, I should warn you that today's episode has mentions of sexual assault and suicide, so if that is a particular sensitivity for you, you may want to skip this episode. Venice Film Festival, Decades of Silence, Gwyneth Paltrow's House. Today on The Pursuit, Rowena Chu. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today our guest is Rowena Chu. Now, The Pursuit is a podcast where I sit down with faith leaders, and I don't think that Rowena would be considered a faith leader in the conventional understanding of the word, but I do think that our conversation today has a lot to say about our faith and our culture in the church today. You see, Rowena Chu is a Harvey Weinstein survivor. She worked as Harvey's assistant in 1998, and she tells of her account on the fateful nights at the Venice Film Festival and about the painful silence that followed her for 20 years. Now, when we sat down, it was right at the beginning of the school closings for the coronavirus. So that meant that her four kids were running around in the next room during the interview, but that's okay because I think that her story is so important for all of us to hear. So Rowena, most of the guests that I have on my show are, I guess, would be considered Asian American, but you're not Asian American, you're British Chinese. Yes. Uh, so I was born in the UK. My parents were actually born on the mainland, uh, mainland China. My dad is from uh, Sandong province okay. and my mom is Zhou. But they were, um, they went to Hong Kong as uh, young students for their primary and secondary education and then emigrated to the UK for tertiary education. So they both went to university in the UK, uh, met, married and settled in the UK and they still live there today. And so you did your schooling and upbringing and everything like that in, in the UK? That's right. So I was born about an hour north of London. I moved to an hour west of London when I was three. And I was consistently in the UK for my primary, secondary, and then university. And then after I graduated from university, I started to work overseas. So um, over the course of my various careers in different industries, I've worked uh, largely in Asia, Africa, and across Europe. And now I live in the US. Did you grow up as a Christian? Did you grow up in the faith? Yes, absolutely. In fact, my grandparents were Christians, um, and it is, you know, connected to the reasons why they left China with their young children. There was, there was a level of religious persecution in my grandparents' generation. Yeah. Um, and so they took their young children out to Hong Kong, where my parents' generation was very involved in the church. Yeah. Uh, my uncle is a pastor, my cousin is a pastor, and my brother-in-law is a pastor. Wow. Yeah, we've got more than our fair share of pastors in our family. <laughs> and so um, did you go to a, a Chinese-British church? So when I was a very young baby, my parents were still, I was the first of two daughters, and my younger sister is three years younger than me. So when I was born, my parents were still part of a Chinese church fellowship. But once they married and had children, I think there was some feeling that they didn't want their children to grow up surrounded by only other Chinese immigrants. Yeah. And so they spent some time, uh, quite a long time in my childhood at a predominantly white Baptist church um, in the suburbs. Yeah. And so as I grew up, I went to a church called Maidenhead Baptist Church. My family attended that church from when I was three until I was about 15. And whilst that church family was very warm, you know, I have distinct memories in my childhood of being the only family of color in that church community. There was a time when I was about somewhere between the age of 12 to 15 when the church really changed and a lot of churches changed in their style. 
And so my parents, who were pretty conventional, were concerned, and they made a number of visits to their old church, Chinese Church in London. I see. And I started to realize that there was this group of people who I could really connect to. Yeah. And as an emerging teen, this was huge for me. It was, it was like wondering why I'd been weird all my life and suddenly coming across a group of people. Wow, there were people like me. They looked like me, but they yeah. also felt like me. Mm. And they talked about their faith like me. Yeah. It was revolutionary, literally revolutionary. So I remember at that young age, somewhere between 12 to 15, kind of going into my parents' bedroom and saying, please, please, it's Sunday. Can we, can we get up early? Can we drive to London? Can we go to services at Chinese Church today? And my parents being, oh, you know, it's so far, it's such a hassle. Right. And they didn't really want do that. But I remember as a young teen driving to bring my family back to Chinese church. Wow. And so so we rejoined Chinese church when I was about 15 or 16. And I would credit Chinese church in London for being the making of me. You know, I was a super shy 14, 15 year old. And it gave me a confidence and a social group uh, to which I belonged. So you went to Oxford and uh, what was your experience there? Yeah. So there's an interesting story about my admission to Oxford. Okay. And in contravention to my parents, who of course wanted me to study mathematics and science and so on, I chose liberal arts. Between the age of 16 and 18, I was studying English, history, religious studies, and Latin, classical languages. So I was very much in the liberal arts field, and I wanted to apply to Oxford to read English. And, uh, you know, to cut a long story short, my school were very against this decision. And in fact, they called my parents in and they specifically said, uh, we feel that Rowena as someone who did not grow up steeped in our traditions and culture, <gasps> would not have a sufficient understanding of our literature no. to uh, enable her to study at Oxford. Your high school called your parents and told them that? Yeah, right. Oh my gosh. So they, they basically jinxed my, they, they would not allow me to apply to Oxford to study English because as someone who was not ste- who did not grow up steeped in their culture and traditions, I wouldn't have a sufficient appreciation of their literature. Uh, weirdly, I would understand their history Right. You know, they were happy for me to apply to study history, yeah. but not literature. This was a, at the time for me, this was kind of a huge thing sure. that, uh, that I, I felt that I was not permitted to apply to university to study the subject I wanted to study was at first, was, you know, at base galling for someone who is 17 going on 18 and getting a sense of her own identity. Right. There was also the massive racial slur around how, yeah. you know, I wouldn't be the same as my classmates. I wouldn't comprehend it in the same way. Oh my gosh. At that time, I found that enraging. Yeah. You know, I went through the Oxford admission process. I went through the entrance exam. I was put forward as a historian. I did win a place to read history at uh, an Oxford college. Even before I went up to Oxford, actually, I started to write letters and try to get my degree switched over. And I, when I was physically there, I, I worked with the dean in my first term at Oxford to say, no, no, there's been a misunderstanding. Listen, I've got to tell you the story, how my school forced me to apply for history when I really wanted to be an English major. Yeah. And they were sympathetic, but it's a very small college and they handpick six students from a pool of thousands, six to study English and six to study history. Yeah. So they said that in, my, in their initial days, I wasn't able to switch over. But if I did well in history and I studied hard for the first year, um, they would consider a switch at the end of the first year. Yeah. So I did do that. I studied one year of history and then I studied at my second and third year in English. Because you switched over. I did manage to succeed at switching over and I, st- uh, and I ended up 
with a degree in English literature and language. So you graduate from Oxford and you're choosing a career and you choose one that's pretty non-conventional for an Asian person in your culture. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it sounds like a cliche and it sounds like a scene off, you know, fresh off the boat. <laughs> so, um, yeah, my parents steered me towards these very conventional careers, but um, I was very adamant that I wanted to not only study liberal arts, but also pursue a career in liberal arts. And, and it was unusual for someone of a British Chinese background. And I was certainly the only person in my entire circle of friends who, who went for such an unconventional career at that time. What made you want to enter into the movie industry? I like to tell stories. I really like to tell stories. I, so I think it's a natural progression from being a literature student, wanting to study the way that other people told stories. And yeah. as a young teen, I loved to write. I wrote poems and I wrote short stories and I dreamed of being a novelist. You know, I had this passion to study other people's stories, to tell other people's stories. Yeah. And writing is a very isolating pursuit. Uh -huh. And so once I got to university and I started working backstage for many, many theater productions. Yeah. And whilst as someone who once wanted to write, it seemed more likely that I would want to be a director, I felt there was a lot of competition for both stage directing and um, film directing. Sure. And I liked serving. I liked being in a serving role. I liked helping other people bring their stories to life. Mm. And I was good at the logistics. So I, I went into production because I thought it would be the less, a less competitive route than wanting to be a film director. Did you factor in your, the fact that you're a British Chinese woman trying to break into this industry in the mid nineties? Yes. It's almost impossible. <laughs> so, so it's impossible for, for women, Caucasian women. Right. It's just hard for women in general. Still, still is. Yeah. Incredible. Right. Yeah. If you look at the stats around Hollywood's representation of women and women, women directors and so on, you're talking multiple levels of a camel through the eye of a needle. Yeah. And so it made sense that I would not try. I thought the path to film direction would be a hill that I, that I would almost certainly die on. Huh. And so I think the path to production was less littered with dead bodies. Oh my gosh. It's all the work and none of the glory. Yeah. Uh, right? You're the COO instead of the CEO. Yeah. Nobody thinks of it as your movie, but yet you're moving all the heavy parts. Yeah. You're, you're doing the heavy lifting to get that movie made as a producer. What a burden to bear for a young 20-year-old British woman. Well, if you, pick, if you pick a career where you're literally a pioneer, where no one has tried this before, you have to break new ground. Yeah. And that's true of anyone that, that is a pioneer in any industry, right? But there's there's something, I mean, there seems to be something about your character because when your school called your parents and said she shouldn't be an English major, you refused to give in and you fought and you found a way. And it's interesting because there are echoes of later, much later, or a little bit later anyway, when we were 24 and 25, when... Zelda Perkins and I, yeah. we were compelled to sign this NDA. We also fought very hard at that time. Yeah. We fought very hard against signing an NDA. We fought very hard against being forced to accept money, really, to cover up a crime. Yeah. And we wanted that narrative to go in a whole different direction. So there certainly is a common thread of the fighting. But, but a question I want to raise about that fighting is, I had a vision of myself, my self-image at that time as a, a, late, a young teen and then later as a young adult, was actually of someone that was 
very oppressed and never spoke out. Yeah. And I still sort of tell this narrative today, but people who knew me at the time was like, well, what do you mean? You're a trailblazer. <laughs> you were really unusual for someone who was British Chinese. You, st- you stood out, you spoke, you used your voice and you knew the power of your voice. And I said, no, I, I didn't feel that. I felt that society oppressed me and I felt unable to speak out. Wow. And I think those two narratives are not necessarily distinct from one another, actually. Yeah. They're sort of flip sides of the same coin. Yeah. I think whilst it is true that I was feisty as an individual, I was born into a community and society that didn't allow for that and expected something very different. And so it's a weird sort of juxtaposition. And in some ways, as a present day Harvey Weinstein survivor, the same is true. I'm often asked, well, what about the verdict? What about the impact on the Me Too movement? And I often give these very two-faced answers where I say, on the one hand, we as a movement have achieved a great deal. We didn't expect yes. a conviction, and even a partial. Right. We didn't expect Harvey would spend a single day in Rikers. Yeah. And yet we've come so far. But I always say, but, but the legal system is very stacked against rape victims. Yeah. In talking about my younger self, I think that whilst there was this image of someone that fought the system, there's also an image of somebody that was oppressed by the system and that those two things go hand in hand. So tell me about how you came to work for Harvey Weinstein. So the first job I got in film was at a Hollywood talent agency, International Creative Management, known as ICM. Yeah. I applied for a very junior role. Uh, in fact, the role that I actually originally applied for at ICM, not the job that I did, was to walk the dogs, the chairman of ICM. <laughs> so I wrote a letter saying that um, I, you know, imagine this scenario, I'm a graduated Oxford with flying colors. My parents think I'm going to be a lawyer. And instead I write a letter saying, I want to be a dog's body. Oh my goodness. Uh, this was how my letter was entitled. As in, I want, I am a qualified Oxford graduate with a great degree and I want to walk your two dogs. Uh, and, and I offer this illustration because at that time, this is how you got into the film industry. You got in by right. working, doing the grunt work. So, um, you know, at that time, the film industry was not organized like corporate life, where you signed on for a traineeship, graduate training program, as they were gloriously called. Uh, You didn't. You went into any sort of production company or agency, and you did the most menial jobs that you could do, including picking up dog poop and sharpening pencils, because you hoped that over time you would get promoted. If you could do the small jobs well, you got promoted to the bigger role. Right. And you were glad to do it. Absolutely. And you get paid nothing as well. I mean, you literally in some cases get paid nothing. And if you do earn a salary, it's pretty meager. Yeah. Yeah, So I worked at ICM for six months. Uh, As it turned out, when I turned up for my first day at work, there was a new agent in town who had had several assistants that she, who had not been successful in her office, <laughs> uh, which I laugh about because she was a difficult person to work for. There's yeah. a theme forming here because later I'll be told about another difficult person to work for. But she was a hard person to work for. And so instead of walk, walking the dogs, I ended up working as her assistant for six months. And uh, she was challenging, you know, definitely challenging. Yeah. And she had a temper and she threw things. And it's interesting because I'm often asked, you know, why did you accept the job with Harvey if you knew at least that he had a legendary temper? Right. And I was like, well, it's not exactly like you could say, no, no, I'm not going to work for Harvey Weinstein's office. I'm going to walk down the road to like a handful of film companies here who have perfectly reasonable bosses. That just didn't exist. Right. So how did you end up with Miramax? So while I was uh, during these six months when I was working as an agent's assistant, an email went round ICM saying that Zelda Perkins was looking to leave her role as Harvey Weinstein's assistant and she was looking for a replacement. 
And so she appealed to ITM. I went for an interview, an interview that's now pretty infamous for being an interview where she said he was a difficult person to work for and you would have to handle him robustly. Hmm. And what did you what did you take that to mean? I thought, I remember thinking at the time, I already work for a really difficult boss. Yeah. She's a woman, not a man. She is difficult. Uh, and I actually fully expect anyone that I work for in the film industry to be difficult. Right. They will be highly demanding. It's the film industry. They're not bankers or lawyers. So there's going to be histrionic fits. People will lose their call daily. Yeah. People will throw things. This is all part of being in the film industry. Right. And I didn't think anything of it. I didn't consider that working for Harvey, you know, obviously it was a step up. His temper was more legendary than many other producers. Yeah. And there were certainly rumors that he was a bit of a pest and that, you know, wandering hands and inappropriate comments and so on. Yeah. You know, I was aware that there would be some fending off. But, you know, the other thing is that 20 years ago when we were in the workplace, it wasn't even a reportable offense that your boss would have wandering hands yeah. or make inappropriate remarks. It's just part of yeah. the room talk that was in any workplace. And you just kind of had to be, as a woman, you just had to look out for yourself. You had to make sure you weren't alone. You didn't travel alone on business with guys that had a certain reputation. And you had to kind of develop a blind eye and a blind ear to inappropriate locker room talk in the workplace. Yeah, 98 is closer to Anita Hill exactly. than it is Me Too. Exactly. It's a totally different world. Different world. So Rowena, would you, would you mind telling us about the nights in Venice? So I only spent two months in Harvey Weinstein's office. During the course of those two months, uh, the way the office was set up is there would be four assistants in New York that would serve Harvey's travel across North America and two assistants in London that would serve Harvey's travel across Europe. Okay. And so typically Harvey would come over to London and perhaps visit the set for Shakespeare in Love or perhaps go to a screening of the latest cut for Shakespeare in Love or go to the different film festivals around Europe where he would frequently speak or be accepting an award or be a guest of honor at a dinner. Yeah. So that was the kind of work that Harvey would engage in whilst he was traveling in Europe. And our roles as his assistants in Europe would be to, of course, be available to jump at any time of the night or day if Harvey took an unexpected trip to Europe. And then in the times in between, which were the quiet times, we would review scripts, we would go out to fringe theater, and we would be on the lookout for new talent that Miramax could bring into their stable. Right. The first trip that Harvey took to London was a trip to view the latest cut for Shakespeare in Love. And he only spent mm. three days in London and, they, and he was well-staffed. So uh, whilst I spent time in his company and I spent time managing his office and fielding phone calls and catering to his every whim, uh, there weren't times where I was alone in a hotel room. With him. Right. But uh, that first trip was he was just getting to know me as a second assistant and trying to figure out whether he could trust me if Zelda left. Okay. The second trip to Venice, so, and the way the days were structured at the Venice Film Festival is that we worked essentially in shift work. So Zelda, as the first assistant and someone who was more senior, would come to Harvey's hotel room at six in the morning and she would wake him up and get him started for the day uh -huh. and set up his call sheet and figure out who he needed to call in different time zones around the world, uh, figure out which scripts uh, he was reading and you know, just make sure that his office was set up, make sure breakfast was set, sent to the room and so on and so forth. Uh -huh. So there would be that period of time in the morning between 6 a.m. and 10 a.m. where she would work with him on her own. And then at 10 a.m., as the business of the day really started to pick up and we started to have meetings, the second assistant, that would be me, would come on duty. So I would report into the hotel room at 10. And then the, we would have a very long day of 12 hours where we would work together from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Wow. And 
during the flurry of that 12-hour period, there'll be people coming and going for meetings. There'll be phone calls. The phone will be ringing off the hook. There'll be constant phone calls. There would be scripts to be, right. you know, couriered from A to B. And there would just be the general business of managing the office. And then at 7 p.m., uh, Zelda and Harvey would go out to whatever event or function they were attending that evening. And usually it was a pretty formal function, okay. a dinner, a gala, an award ceremony, and so on. And that would be a quiet time of the day where I would settle back into the office, uh, which the hotel room, which doubled as an office. And I would read the scripts that had been accumulated during the day. Mm-hmm. And I would have three hours to do this between 7 to 10. And then at 10, Harvey would return from the event of the evening. Zelda would get him settled in for the night and make sure that we had everything we needed. We had a call sheet, we had a pile of scripts to discuss, the phones were all working properly, and then she would she would head off because she would have to come back the next morning at six. Right. So she was off duty from about ten PM to six AM, which is an eight hour period. And I would continue to work alone with Harvey until two in the morning. Okay. Which is why I didn't get to come in till ten. So we had we each had an eight hour period off. But sixteen hour days. Sixteen hour days. So they were pretty intense. Yeah, sure. So these periods of time late at night between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. Now, the reason why I go into that detail is because it's easy to misunderstand and think, oh, I'm in the hotel room at 10 o'clock at night because we've come back from a dinner or a gala and I'm having a nightcap with the boss right. after a hard day at work. Right. And that's not true. That part of the, that period of time in the evening was still intended to be part of our professional life. It was still intended to be right. part of the day where we would be reviewing scripts and making phone calls. And we were supposed to be working. We were not supposed to be socializing. We were not sitting around with two glasses of whiskey or anything like that. Right. And so the evenings would start very professionally. So Harvey would be, so tell me, Rowena, about the scripts that you've read tonight and do any of them jump out at you? And so I would be eager to, you know, I was a straight A student and a model minority. <laughs> so I would be eager to, Get it, please. I'd be, oh, yes, you know, here we, here we are, Mr. Weinstein. I've read 10 scripts, and, um, right. you know, I think this one is an excellent script. And when I, I would get into talking about story structure and character. But, you know, right from the get go, from the first evening in Venice, Harvey very quickly used the opportunity, once you're alone in a room with him, to interweave professional and personal conversations. So he would say, you know, he would start by flattering you and saying, oh, you just graduated Oxford with a degree in English literature. I can see you have a real grasp for story and character. And one of the projects they were considering was Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, which did indeed, you know, was indeed eventually a film that Miramax made. But he would say, you must have studied Jane Austen. So tell me, do you think Mansfield Park is is one of her stronger novels? Is there another novel that you think is is your favorite? And there's nothing like a sparking a conversation about literature with a newly a person who's newly graduated from Oxford with a degree in English literature. Of course, I love to talk about books <laughs> and authors. And, right. and so, you know, he would quickly uh, put me at ease by talking about books and authors. So he would say, you know, when you were at Oxford, you studied uh, Austin and he would say, what else did you do when you were at Oxford? And I would talk about, you know, the plays that I've directed. And, so and then he would say, and did you have a boyfriend when you were at Oxford? And, you know, very quickly, he was, there was a, a convoluted conversation where he would talk about your favorite books, but he would also ask about your ambitions in film. And he would also weave that in with personal detail as in, right. you know, now that you're working as my assistant, that's going to require long hours and much travel. And what does your boyfriend at home, whom you've been dating since your university days, think of your travel? What does he think of you now here at Venice? Does he miss you? And right. It seemed normal that he would be, it seemed a logical continuance that he would ask about my private life. But there would be a sinister side to that too. He would say, so, you know, I don't hear mention of any other boyfriends. Is is this guy your first boyfriend? You know, you got together when you were very young. And so, you know, Hmm. he would also ask about 
my family? What did my parents think about me working in film? He would say originally, but then he would also say, and what does your family think about your boyfriend? And he's trying to get a sense of what your love life looks like, what your home life looks like, yeah. what your family looks like, whether your parents are stripped Asian parents that are disapproving of the fact that you even have a boyfriend. Right. Uh, he's trying to get a sense for all that. And it seems on the surface to be a logical connection to a talk about story and character and a talk about your aspirations in the film industry, but it's actually not. Right. And so very quickly, you know, anyone who has been a victim of Harvey's will tell you stories of how one minute you're talking about scripts and the next minute he's stripped down and he's saying, oh, you know, I had a really long day and I got to get comfortable. And then he strips down and then he tr tries to get you to strip down. He's like, well, it's really warm in this hotel room and I'm here just in this robe. You look like you're wearing quite a few layers. You know, why don't you take your jacket off at least and sit down and get comfortable? Right. Uh, so he's trying to get you to take off your clothes. And then he's like, and I'm really sore just here in the left shoulder really use a massage and so straight away he's trying to get you to give him massages and he's saying well you know you've also had a long day let me give you a massage and then if he is massaging you he's, he's trying to touch you inappropriately you know he's right. massaging your shoulders one minute and the next minute he's massaging your breast mm. he's asking uh you know if you if you're willing to give him a massage he wants to be touched inappropriately too in the genital area and then he's and from that, he's going, I would be so much more relaxed if, you know, about, how about I go down on you? How about you go down on me? So it's not like a massive jump. Oh, my God. It seems like an enormous jump. Right. But over the course of four hours, right. he weaves in personal and professional. He weaves in requests for a massage. And it's, you know, I've talked about it once before. It's a slow boiling frog. Yeah. It is a slow boiling frog. Yeah. He's like, if you're prepared to talk about your personal life, as in your family life, and, and maybe your faith and your love life with him, then you've already entered the realm of being able to talk about personal things. And then he can ask for personal requests, like a massage. And then if you're prepared to give him a massage, maybe he'll let you massage him in an off-limits area, or maybe he will uh, get you to do it. And then from there, there's, you know, requests for blowjobs. Oh my gosh. The first night, I think it was all massages and uh, oral sex. But the second night, uh, he started to say things like, uh, well, we, you know, we've got to know each other a lot better now. I just want to ask you, in between those two nights, when you went home and slept for those eight hours, what were you thinking? Well, remember that we didn't go home. We were in a hotel. Right. Yeah. So we just went back. I just went back to my hotel room. I think that's important too, because... Now I'm 45 years old. I look back on these two young women, 24 and 25. It's not just that we were facing sexual harassment at work and sexual assault on a regular basis. We didn't get the chance to divide from our work life, to go home and talk to anyone in our yeah. circle of trusted friends. But remember that when we were on overseas travel, we had no opportunity to. And we didn't in those days have iPhones, ubiquitous iPhones that everyone carried around that we could take one another on. Sure. So when you were on a work trip with Harvey, you were pretty socially isolated. Sure. So the only person I could have told was Zelda. And of course, I thought about telling her the next morning, but I was less like, well, you know, he's being a pest, but I can handle this. I don't want to be a wuss. I don't want the first morning after I spent my first evening working with Harvey, right. I don't want to say, oh, I can't handle him. She's going to say, I told you he was a difficult person. Right. So I don't want to be somebody that gives in easily. Yeah. So fast forward to the second night, he's you know leaning over me in the bed and holding me down and attempting to part my legs and saying, just one thrust, it'll all be over. I've never had a Chinese girl before and you're so young at this. Let me show you how it, how it's done. Let me show you some tricks even that you can take back to your boyfriend. Oh my gosh. I realized then I'm enormously out of my depth. 
And I'm still trying to make attempts to get away. So I'm still saying things which sound ridiculous in the context of what is happening. I'm saying things like, no, no, I, I have a boyfriend and I am, we're part of a church youth group. We, we don't, we don't do this. Yeah. And he's saying, let me show you how things happen in the real world. Yeah. He's saying, did this, he said, you know, why shouldn't, don't worry. This is how things work in the film industry. You don't know because you're young to this. And he would constantly repeat, you don't know because you're young to this. And um, I, I, I've never had a Chinese girl, UK. So he was constantly on this narrative of mm. fetishizing both my inexperience and my race. Yeah. And I would be saying, as I did during the course of the evening, I said, um, well, it's getting really late and I should go. And I, I actually borrowed Zelda's phone today because I, I lost my mobile phone on a water taxi in Venice. Mm. So one of my big excuses that second night is I've got to go. I've got to go because right. Zelda has asked me to check in on her. And I also have her phone, which I have to return to her. So I would constantly be making excuses. Yeah. Um, I didn't have much arsenal with which to persuade Harvey to let me out of the room. Right. I invoked Zelda regularly because it seems that she, in the power dynamic where we both had very little power, it seemed that Harvey was more afraid of Zelda than he would be of me. Mm -hmm. uh, and that could be for some, some really benign reason, like uh, they had worked together for three years. So she knew the ins and outs of his office yeah. better than I did. Or it could be something more sinister in that she had some dirt on him that, you know, I mean, she would have had dirt on him just by virtue of the fact she worked for him for three years. Right. So it seemed to be that um, if I said I've got to go because Zelda is worried about me and she asked me to check in on her when I left the room, that would seem to stall him a little bit. Of course, he wouldn't, you know, cease in his eternal machinations to kind of get you to give him a massage or get you to give him a blowjob or get you to have sex with him. But he would pause mm. briefly. So in the end, I did I did invoke Zelda to, to get to leave the hotel room because I said, it's getting really late. She's going to be really worried about me. She, she might even come up here looking for me. So, you know, he was testy, but not fully angry. And he said, he said, well, fine, we'll pick this up tomorrow. So the reason why I told Zelda in the morning is I felt like the second night had ratcheted up quite a few degrees from the first night in terms right. of harassment. And I was worried about how to deal with the third night. Uh, I did not expect her to react in the way that she did, which was to immediately to freak out really to say oh my gosh uh, you must never be in a room with him again yeah i didn't actually expect that I, I wasn't anticipating that i was sort of thinking naively she might have some sort of magic bullet she might go oh yeah he tries this on with all the new assistants just tell him forget it i'm not for sale right and then after that he'll leave you alone i thought there'd be something easy that i could say something reasonable something reasonable right right so she leapt into action she this was the next morning this was the next morning and it wasn't immediately the next morning. So remember, she started with Harvey at six and then I came at 10. But by the time I came at 10, the office would be in full flow. So there were dozens of people milling around, right. people going in and out at meetings. And there wasn't any opportunity for me to talk to Zelda alone. But I had the whole day where I wouldn't be in a hotel room alone with Harvey. So I had plenty of time to kind of find a quiet moment with her. I see. So we got on with the business of the day at 10. And then at 12, Harvey went down to the veranda of the Excelsior Hotel in Venice, where he was having lunch with a number of list Hollywood stars. Yeah. He, he went with his whole entourage. So Zelda and I were alone in the hotel room slash office for the first time. And I tell her and she actually immediately has an emotional reaction, which I'm not expecting. She uh, yeah. has tears in her eyes and she is shocked. And I wasn't expecting that, actually. I was kind of expecting much more like a brush off, right. much more like, a, oh, yeah, he does that to all the young assistants and this is what you should do. And so I'm telling her how horrified and terrified I felt. And I'm shaking and white and crying 
So we have this a brief conversation about what shall we do? And we talk about how we're stuck in the Lido, which is an island in Venice, not even on the Venice mainland. We don't have any access to any finance of our own. Mm-hmm. Uh, we came here using corporate uh, corporate Amex cards that belongs to Miramax. And we were flown there by private jet and then driven there by right. car, which sounds ridiculous. But we didn't have a way of kind of getting back to London by ourselves. And even if we did, you know, find an Italian police station, we didn't speak any Italian. So we decided that the obstacles to doing something right away were insurmountable. So instead, we um, decide that we'll do something about it in London. But she says, you're never going to spend a night in a hotel room with him again. And she marches downstairs to confront Harvey. I'm back in the hotel room, absolutely shaking. I'm not part of the going down to confront Harvey. Right. So I only have her account of it but she has told the account in many interviews and she tells me that when she stalked up to him at a table full of a-list stars right it's an unheard of thing for a young assistant to go and interrupt him in the middle of all this right she's 25 at this point right instead of saying what he normally would have said which is what the f- are you doing here right well she said to him come with me now it's really important mm. and he got up meek as a lamb and followed her from the table and she stalked down the corridor with her shoulders tensely held together indicating she was very angry and he just followed her and she actually said to me the most terrifying moment is when he stood up at the table and followed me down the aisle Mm. because at that moment I knew something terrible had happened Yeah, because there's no way he would have left the company of these stars had something something bad not happened right he knew and then immediately as she confronted him in the corridor what happened with Rowena last night he said I swear on the lives of my wives and children and she said that was the second moment when her heart dropped Mm. because she said if he's swearing on the lives of his wife and children which I've heard him do multiple times it means that he's trying to get himself out of a sticky situation wow so then what happens the rest of the trip the rest of the trip she very gallantly takes the night shift and the early morning shift so she's working this 20-hour day. Oh, my gosh. She's off duty for only four hours from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So, yeah, she's working a 20-hour day where she does the beginning and the end by herself. But I still serve in the middle with her from 10 to 10. So it's not like I never see Harvey again. We still work together to finish the trip. Right. For the rest of the trip, she is furious. I can see that there is barely contained anger underneath the surface. Her face always looks like a thundercloud and she goes about her duties, but she's angry. And I'm terrified like a rabbit because I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm constantly in a room with just Harvey and Zelda and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen to the power dynamics. Is it never going to be mentioned again in a very Asian way? Is Harvey at some point going to explode at Zelda? Is he going to say, what the f***? Rowena's right right here. Do you think I'd ever treat her like that? Yeah. You know, is he going to say that at some point? I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm constantly on tenderhooks thinking something's going to happen. Or maybe not. Maybe nothing's going to happen. And we're just going to pretend it never happened. And for the rest of the trip, because Harvey seemed to be very adept at jumping over the line and then jumping back. and Yeah, absolutely. In so doing so, blurring the line. Yeah, absolutely. Did he ever cross the line again during that trip? Like, did he say anything that was hopping over the line? To me, while Zelda was in the room, not on your life. Yeah. He wouldn't do that while Zelda... He knew how angry Zelda was. Yeah. You just had to look at her face to see that she was furious. Yeah. So she was like an unexploded bomb and he didn't know what she was going to do with that information, right? Yeah. So in some ways, as a young woman at 24 who knew barely anything, I was right in my intuition that if I called Zelda on Harvey, that would protect me. Yeah. She must have something on him that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, that is the way it went down. So there's a very awkward dynamic for the rest of the trip, but we somehow worked together. We managed to place all the calls and 
manage all the meetings and get the scripts coming in and out and getting the actors coming in and out, getting the producers coming in and out. It's a busy work of the day continues. And we do another couple of days in Venice and then we do three days in Deauville at a different film festival. Wow. So we do that and then the trip ends as is scheduled to end and Harvey flies back directly from New York by private jet from Venice, uh, from Deauville, I'm sorry. Zelda returns to Venice because that film festival is still ongoing. She has some other business there. So she goes back in that direction and I go back to London. So I go back to London. Zelda is in Venice. She returns to London after a couple of days and she very shortly afterwards takes off for a trip to New York. But she assures me that we're going to do something. It's a confusing time because we're back in the office. We're waiting to hear news of, of Harvey's next trip to London, but we are we have some reprieve and we talk incessantly, of course, about what are we going to do, but there are not that many options available to two young assistants. Yeah. We talk to the only other senior woman in the room and she gives us the name of a lawyer, but says no one's going to believe us. But if you want to try to do something about this, here's a lawyer. Wow. So Zelda flies to New York and meets with that lawyer, who's a civil rights lawyer, very well-versed in harassment cases against senior people. Uh -huh. And she says... Well, the assault of your young colleague took place in Venice. Uh, I can't help you because I'm a U.S. civil rights attorney huh. and neither of you are American citizens and neither of you reside in America. So you're going to have to go back to London and find a lawyer in London. So Zelda starts walking the streets in the local area around where our office is and going into any office that's labeled attorney. Yeah. So if it says that you're a lawyer outside, she goes in and... She's going door to door? She's going door to door. Because in those days, we don't have uh, we don't have Google. <laughs> so you can't Google right. sexual harassment lawyer, employment discrimination lawyer. But I mean, just the picture that going door to door to take down Harvey Weinstein. Right. And we have no money. Yeah, right. We have no money to pay a lawyer. Uh, so yeah, we go door to door. Exactly. We go door to door to take down Harvey Weinstein. Most uh, lawyers who we say we're two young assistants working at a company. We can't tell you what industry we work in, but um, one of us was assaulted by our boss, who's a very powerful person in the industry we work in. Is this a case you'd be interested in taking on pro bono? <laughs> Most people who hear the word sexual assault, workplace environment, right. business trip to Venice, no way. Right. So no one wants to take us on. Eventually, we find a small Soho-based law firm that says, sure, we'll give it a crack. But the senior manager who's a guy who says, I'll give it a crack. He doesn't take us seriously. Mm. He's just like, ah, you know, you two young girls just want to have a go, but you're not going to get anything out of this. Right. Right? You're not going to win anything. You're not going to be able to bring it to court and you're not going to get any money. So I don't know why you're trying, but okay, we'll take it on. So he sort of throws our case at a fairly junior associate wow. who's roughly 30, newly qualified. So once we got a lawyer, we faxed New York to say we are invoking constructive dismissal, which is a legal term to mean we're leaving our jobs because the conditions under which we work are untenable. Right. You know, due to your behavior in Venice and behavior at other times of which you are well aware. Mm -hmm. So Zelda drafted this and she deliberately made reference to behavior in Venice, which was the sexual assault. Yeah. She made reference to behavior at other times of which you were aware, but I never knew. Does that mean other assaults on other women or does that just mean he loses his temper a lot? Huh. That's not clear. Yeah. But our facts does say, due to your behavior in Venice of which you are well aware and your behavior at other times. So we invoke constructive dismissal. We hear from Harvey's lawyers. He hires the biggest law firm in town, the biggest, most expensive law firm in town. Yeah. And pretty soon we are summoned to the glass offices of Allen and Overy, which is one of the biggest British law firms. The conditions under which we find ourselves then negotiating with Harvey's lawyers are 
you know, pretty horrendous. We're, we don't, we're not allowed to go to the office during normal working hours um, because Harvey's paranoid that we'll be seen by people that no, that normally work in that office. So wow. we, uh, negotiations that are negotiated in the dead of night after five or six o'clock in the evening when all the workers are going home. Yeah. We are sometimes kept in the office overnight till 5 a.m. Oh my goodness. We are escorted to the bathroom at all times. We can't even take a pee without somebody watching us. <sighs> we're not allowed to keep a pen and paper. You know, I felt we were treated as criminals. You know, I think if I'd been 40-something and a bit more worldly wise, I would have asked for other conditions. For a start, why were we meeting in Harvey's right. offices, Harvey's lawyer's offices? And why were we the ones not allowed to keep a pen and paper? But it was clear from the beginning that the power dynamic was all on Harvey's side, even though he was the one alleged to have committed a crime, yeah. not us. It was all histrionics and drama. Yeah. That's all for showmanship, the stuff about being brought there at night and being escorted to the bathroom and not being allowed to keep pen and paper. I mean, the real egregious... Oppression and injustice was done within the body of the NDA itself. Yeah. The things that we were not allowed to discuss, the fact that they even used a legal contract to cover up what should have been reported as criminal crime, you know, that of attempted rape or sexual assault. That's a crime. Yeah. You're not supposed to use a legal document to cover that up. Right. And when you read the 30 pages of our NDA, which we weren't even, we weren't allowed to keep a copy. We, for 20 years, wow. did not have this document. And then... Even when Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey broke the story in October 2017, it took us almost a full year before we were able to obtain a copy of our NDA. We ended up get, um, being able to get one in the summer of 2018. But the process of obtaining even a copy of that document we signed those, all those years ago was not a simple one. So Harvey's lawyers had a copy. Our lawyers had a copy. But our lawyers were so afraid of Harvey that they, were, they refused to give it to us. They refused point blank to give it to us. In fact, our, our former lawyers in London refused to even talk to us or meet with us. They won't give us a copy of our file. As former clients, we are, you know, they're obliged to give us a copy of our file, but they won't. They're sure. so afraid of Harvey. Even though Harvey has fallen from power. Oh my gosh. And he's now in Rikers as a convicted rapist. They're so afraid of Harvey that they won't won't give us our file. Isn't that crazy? Even to this day. Even to this day. Oh my goodness. You know, I think I've spoken of how the journalists talk all the time about these young women forced to sign these NDAs and then legally obligated to remain silent about something yeah. super traumatic. And whilst that is true, that they talk about how we're legally obligated by this document, what I feel is much more pertinent and significant, which I think they don't talk enough about, is... Harvey and Harvey's lawyers had us provide a list of the names and addresses of all of our friends and family. In the end, we pushed back and we only provided a descriptor. But this list of our closest friends and family is included in the NDA as Schedule 5. These are the people that we've spoken to about working for Harvey Weinstein. And it lists things like my boyfriend and my best friend at university and two people that I used to work with in the film industry and two friends from church. Just people that knew that you worked for Harvey. Well, they knew I worked for Harvey oh. and that they and that I had discussed that something had happened. I see. Even my law lecturer, because I was in law school at the time, as you'll remember from my recounting my childhood. Yeah. My law lecturer who teaches a thousand students, he has no idea of my name. I'm just someone in the lecture theater. I came up to him after one of his lectures on equity and taught. Yeah. And I said, you know, I believe something inequitable has happened to a 
friend of mine who went on a business trip to Italy with her boss. I can't tell you what company she works for and I can't tell you what industry she works in, but she travelled to Italy with her boss and something happened in the hotel room. I don't quite know the details and she won't share them with me. But what are her options legally? Hmm. And even though I told him that, I didn't tell him my name and I said it was a friend and I didn't say it was a film industry, even his name is listed on my Schedule 5. And the thought there is that if it comes out later that you had this conversation, it would violate the NDA? The reason why they kept a list of names and addresses of our friends and family are they told us they'd be watching us for the rest of our lives in case we spoke out about it, even inadvertently. Wow. And they would also be watching our friends and family in case anyone of them spoke out about it, even inadvertently. Wow. What's shocking is that if somebody else broke the NDA, unconnected to us, but we had somehow made that possible by speaking to them or something like that, we would have to assist Harvey's side in legal action against them. Oh my gosh. So if my mother talked to the Sun newspaper and said, Harvey Weinstein raped my daughter in Venice in 98, yeah. I would have to join Harvey's side in legal action against my mother and publicly say she was lying. Oh my gosh. The fact you can contract for that is absolutely appalling. Right. Absolutely appalling. Yeah. There are clauses concerning, you know, we can't keep a copy of the agreement and not, and not only can we not keep a copy of it, we are not permitted to seek legal advice on the document or on its legality. In other words... <sighs> If we had signed a document that was illegal, we were not allowed to go to another lawyer and say, hey, we were coerced into signing this document that's illegal, that covers up a crime. Right. That is amazing. That's staggering. It's staggering not that Harvey suggested the audacity of such a clause. What is staggering is that 10 lawyers in the room who are good men and women, actually they were all men, but good men, ordinary citizens, officers of the law, officers of the court yeah. who go home to their wives and children thought this was okay. They don't see themselves as a Harvey Weinstein. They don't have to go to jail. They're still working today as lawyers. They're considered upright citizens and they stood by and let this happen. Wow. That's what I find amazing. Yeah. This is what I find incredible. It's a circle of an enablement that he had around him. You can say that Harvey is a predator and a monster and he certainly is. And he's done heinous things to many, many women over three decades. But he would not have been able to get away with all these things that he has done without a number of people standing behind him. And some of those people to this day believe they're good people. Yeah. It's incredible. So not only could we couldn't keep a copy of the NDA, we couldn't seek further legal advice on it. We could not see either a medical doctor or a therapist. If we wanted to seek advice from any professional, be they lawyer, doctor or therapist, uh, they themselves would have to sign an undertaking with Harvey Weinstein's lawyers in London. Uh, so they'd have to sign a legal contract equivalent to the NDA saying that they would never, ever talk about the event that I am about to reveal to them. Wow. When I was in Hong Kong and I attempted to commit suicide twice and I sought therapy, I would go in to a therapist. Imagine the scene. I'm 26. Uh. I go in, I see a therapist. I say, two years ago in Europe, something terrible happened to me. I want to talk to you about it. I think it's causing me great unhappiness. Uh, I've tried to kill myself twice. Yeah. However, I won't be able to do that unless you sign an undertaking a legal undertaking with this law firm in London. Here's their phone number. And I tried that with eight therapists. And eventually one therapist said to me, I cannot agree to sign a legal undertaking with some lawyers in London about something which you haven't yet told me about. Right. Because it could be patently illegal. 
It could be something like I murdered 20 people and buried them somewhere. I will have a legal and professional obligation to reveal that. And so I can't sign a legal piece of paper. Like no professional worth their salt, no human being worth their salt will ever sign a legal document to say, I won't talk about the things that I don't know about. Right. No one's going to do that. No one is that stupid. And so you talk to eight therapists in Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Right. No one would talk to you. No. So some of them I tried to say, you've got to sign a legal document with this law firm in London and they'd look at me as I was crazy. And then later, other therapists, I'd just say, something happened to me in London. I can't really talk about it. I can talk about generally how I'm unhappy today, but it's not very helpful. And so for 20 years, you suffered in complete silence. Absolutely. We didn't tell anybody. We didn't even speak to each other. We were each other's only other person. Had you seen each other? Never. We never spoke, never spoke for 20 years. Wow. After your attempted suicides in Hong Kong, mm. how, how did you how did you come out of that? How did you, how did you survive? Well, you know, after the suicides, I I did something pretty drastic. I left the film industry entirely because yeah. I knew if I left Miramax, I wouldn't get another job in film. I left uh, Hong Kong, the city that I was living in at the time. It was connected to the two suicide attempts, and I was desperately unhappy there. And I left my boyfriend, whom I'd been with since I was nineteen. Yeah. And you know. Chinese church culture, you date one guy and you marry that one guy. That's just the expectation of the society around you. And also my expectation, that's how I grew up. And that's how my whole circle of friends as teenagers and young adults. So to me, to leave a seven-year relationship and my first relationship that I'd been in since I was 19 and I was now 26 was immeasurably devastating. I I felt I personally failed. Wow. So like leaving a boyfriend of seven years to the Chinese church is a little bit of a scandal. It is a scandal. It's absolutely a scandal. But it's not just a scandal to the community and society. It's a scandal to myself. It was as though I had vowed to marry someone and be with only that person. And I now no longer was. That doesn't, it wasn't a narrative that was conceivable in my head at that stage of my life. And so when you say scandal, that almost sounds like people talked about it. I think that the shock when that happens is so deep that people actually don't talk about it. What they do is they don't talk to you. Right. They shut you out. They shut you out. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're kind of a social pariah. And also if you have a long relationship that breaks down or God forbid a marriage that breaks down, it's somehow as though it might be infectious. Yeah. You can't talk to people who got divorced because it might be catching. (laughs) So you're still attending a Chinese church at this point. And I mean, did you ever think about receiving support, not specifically, but just maybe indirectly from your church, from your community, from your pastor? Well, what I was going to tell you is uh, I was in the middle of saying this long string of I left Miramax. I left the film industry. I left my boyfriend. I left Hong Kong. I left the apartment I was living in in Hong Kong. I didn't even pack up my books, my photos, my clothes. Wow. I just left. I got on a plane and I went to London. I tried visiting Chinese church a few times, but I couldn't connect with my old community and my old family. A lot of my friends from my youth had moved on. They'd gotten married and moved to the suburbs and had kids. It was just impossible. I moved to a whole new church, a non-Chinese church. Yeah. I went to Holy Trinity Brompton, the big church in London that runs the Alpha Course. Yeah. I joined the staff there and I threw myself into you know HTB weekends away and joining a small group and really yeah. immersing myself into life at HTB. And it was a way of healing from life in Hong Kong, healing from life, from exiting Chinese church, from exiting this relationship, from yeah. being in the film industry. I thought I would try to surround myself with good people. So I didn't exactly seek I sought help in a kind of way, but I wasn't allowed to talk about it. And after some attempts in Hong Kong to talk about it surreptitiously, 
I decided that I just wouldn't talk about it for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I would just turn my back on the person I'd been and I would start a whole new life. And so you never lost your faith in God during this time? I didn't lose my faith in God, but I would definitely say that I lost my faith in church. Yeah. Tell me about that. I found the break with Chinese church to be really hard. Although my parents loved me a lot and gave me a very secure upbringing and really sacrificed everything for me, in common with many Chinese families, they provide wonderful food and a wonderful home and wonderful clothes and the material possessions of life. But they didn't talk to me much about Mm. life and growing up and relationships. And so I felt that Chinese church was my salvation when I went there at 15. We talked a bit about that. It was the first time I didn't feel isolated and I didn't feel bullied and I felt like I had a community of peers, really. And it was the first time I was able to really make genuine friends and, you know, feel that I had a community, a family, a society. So losing that was very devastating. I also did feel that a little bit like church is pretty fair weather. If you are conventional and you become a doctor and a lawyer and you marry a beautiful girl and you have two beautiful children, you become an elder. And if you're a little bit wild and you go in the film industry and you have mysterious things happen to you and you break up with your boyfriend in seven years, Mm. you don't, you're not even really a congregation member anymore. Wow. So I felt I didn't live up to their expectations and I felt unable to reach out and talk about it, even on a very not, you know, not going into any of the legal detail that I was barred from speaking. I felt a distance and I wasn't able to reach across that distance. So Rowena, you are now actually out there speaking in violation of your NDA. Nothing has changed as far as that document. No, that's right. Why did you finally choose to come forward? You know, it was a really long progression. I think for every sexual assault survivor, it is, you have a different path to, are you going to talk? And I don't mean publicly in front of millions of people on live television or thousands of people in an auditorium in London. Uh, I just mean, are you going to tell your husband? Are you going to report this person to HR if it happened in a workplace environment? Are you going to tell your parents if you're a young child? You know, every person has a different path to deciding whether to speak out or not. For me, in October 2017, when the story first broke publicly, I was adamant that I would never speak out. I shunned all journalists. I refused any kind of contact, no matter how benign. And for a long time, I I continued to be imprisoned in the silence after Zelda Perkins spoke out publicly. Mm. So there was a period of time between October 2017 and September 2019, a period of two years, where my story and what had happened to me was in the public arena but my name wasn't. So in the UK press, people knew that Zelda Perkins had acted to protect an anonymous colleague, but that anonymous colleague was never named in the press. So it was a frightening period of two years where I was concerned that my name might involuntarily slip into the public domain. A number of journalists certainly knew who I was and even where I lived. Jodie Cantor, Megan Toohey, Ronan Farrow, and a number of other journalists knew my name and where I lived. So I thought someone might be unscrupulous and publish about me. And I was afraid of reputational damage. I'm now in my mid-40s. I live in the Bay Area. I have four very noisy children who you can hear in the background. (laughs) And I was worried about their safety. I was worried they'd be followed to school. They're very young. At the time the story broke, my baby was only six months old. So they would have been eight and six 
and three and a little baby. I didn't know how they would deal with being followed to school, being hounded by journalists. Um, I knew that Zelda's cottage in Wiltshire had been surrounded by journalists when the story broke. Mm. I didn't want that for my children. So my initial instinct was not to speak because of privacy for my family. And then secondly, I hadn't talked to my parents or my sister or any of my many, many of my friends from university days didn't know and hadn't known these 20 years. My church friends didn't know. And I didn't know how to tell them this thing happened 20 years ago that I never talked about with you. I thought there'd be an erosion of trust. Yeah. Jodie Cantor, for, as soon as the story broke, I took on a lawyer. I actually took on Nancy Erica Smith. Huh. She's she's a famous civil rights lawyer. And uh, a big feather in her cap is she uh, represented Gretchen Carlson in her case against Fox News and Roger Ailes. Mm. Jodie Cantor called Nancy Erica Smith pretty much every week to see how I was doing and whether or not I might be willing to speak. In January, they invited me to this gathering at Gwyneth Paltrow's house that would involve Gwyneth and also Ashley Judd. And it would have a number of lawyers, civil rights lawyers. Uh, My lawyer was invited, but also uh, Deborah Katz, who represented Christine Blasey Ford. And they'd be inviting Christine Blasey Ford. Uh They'd be inviting some Trump accusers and uh, some activists from an organization called Fight for 15, which represents McDonald's employees in their cases of sexual harassment. Uh It was a very select gathering of people that in many ways were connected to very public sexual assault stories. So she invited me to come and she said, come, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to tell your story. You could just come and you could just listen to other people's stories and you're not under no obligation to speak. And so in many ways, I thought this would be a soft landing. This is a very private setting in Gwyneth Paltrow's house. We'd be in this room where people would be speaking with one another. And I didn't have an obligation to tell my story, but I could come and listen to other people's stories. And there was supposed to be a circle of trust built between the people in the room. So I thought, well, this is, you know, this would be a way of sort of testing the water. So I attended the event in January. I didn't, uh, I was particularly inspired by hearing Christine Blasey Ford's story. Mm. Because I felt that in the summer of 2018, when she went to testify to Congress about Brett Kavanaugh, that she in many ways lived the nightmare that I thought I was saving my children from. She was hounded by journalists. Mm. They had to leave their house in Palo Alto. They had to move into a hotel room. She got death threats. She wasn't believed by seemingly half the nation. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the things that I had nightmares about, she lived through. And it was very empowering to be in a room with her and hear her talk about those things, but also hear her talk about how she survived them. Mm -hmm. You know, here was living proof in front of me, somebody saying, all of these terrible things that you think are going to happen to you, Rowena, I have actually happened to me and I'm still here and I'm still smiling about it. It's not fun, but I'm able to keep a sense of humor and I'm okay. I'm here. My husband's okay. My kids are okay. And I made the right decision. Right. And I don't regret my decision. So in many ways, meeting Christine Blasey Ford made me realize this was possible. She lives in Palo Alto too. So I had a kinship with her because she's really close by. So meeting her obviously was, you know, was a big step in empowerment, but I still didn't wake up the next day and say, I'm ready. In March, two months later, Zelda invited me to come to the UK to give anonymous testimony to a select committee in the House of Commons. So I'd be testifying in front of a, a panel of MPs, members of parliament, yeah. who, had be, who had convened to look at issues about non-disclosure agreements in the workplace and how they are being misused. Yeah. So I went and I talked, you know, anonymously, they didn't know my name, in front of a panel of MPs about my NDA. This is the first time where you have uttered these words in 20 years. Yeah, so other than to my husband and my lawyer, okay. when I went to Gwyneth's house, 
podcast was the first time I retold a story of what happened to me because, of course, I went and I did tell the story of what happened to me because I it was a safe environment. Yeah. And then I felt empowered by that to go and tell the story again to a select committee of MPs. Yeah. So it was a closed session, not public. But again, it was another retelling of my tale. And these are very early times of yeah. telling my tale. I'd only really talked to my lawyer and my husband prior to that. Yeah. Each time you tell your story, your voice gets a little bit stronger mm. and it empowers you to tell the story again. Yeah. At least this was my experience. And I still didn't wake up the next morning when I flew back to California and said, right, I'm ready. Yeah. So it's a very slow burn. And then in May, I called Jodie Cantor, who I had been in touch with since January, since she met me in person at Gwyneth's gathering, we had been in sporadic touch. Uh -huh. So she no longer had to communicate with me through my lawyer. And to her credit, she didn't push hard, but she was always there. And in May, I said, I think I'm ready to go on the record in your book. Wow. She nearly fell off her chair. Because <laughs> I think at that point, it'd been almost two years. Yeah. From May to over May and June, before I flew to the UK for the summer, I took a series of interviews with Jodie that cemented my role in the book, she said. And we knew the book was going to be published in early September. Uh -huh. So then I flew with my kids to the UK, which we do every year. I took them back to see their grandparents. And I really took time that summer to spend time outdoors and spend time with my children and not mm. spend any time talking about Harvey because I knew that in the September my story would go public and I didn't know how my life would be different. Right. In fact, I had asked the publicist for the book about the appearance on the Today Show. I said, well, if I do one interview on the Today Show about my story, what happens after that? Is that the only interview I'll do? Yeah. Or... <laughs> and I said to her, which sounds like a really naive question now, but I said to her, do you think other media outlets will want to interview me as well? <laughs> I literally had no idea. Wow. I had no experience of anything like this. And she also said, we just don't know. We wish we, I wish we could tell you. But when you speak on the Today Show, you're going to be the 81st person wow. to come out against Harvey Weinstein. 81st. Isn't that staggering? Wow. There are now, at the time of the trial, there are 108. And as of today, there are now 111. Wow. So she said... The media might shrug and say, oh, an 81st person has come out about Harvey Weinstein about, with some horrible tale about how he held her to a bed in a hotel room. Right. But that's, you know, 81 people now and the world has moved on and we're talking about other things. Mm -hmm. So that might be it. That might be my 15 minutes of fame will be the six minute appearance on the Today Show. Or some other media outlets might call you after hearing your story on the Today Show. So I went on the Today Show yeah. and then almost a month later, I wrote the op-ed that was published in the New York Times, mm -hmm. the, the one that was entitled, Harvey Weinstein told me he liked Chinese girls. And my life has never been the same again since that op-ed. Within that week, I had hundreds of letters from the Asian American community. Wow. But I also had enormous media interest in my story after the op-ed. Yeah. Part of it was driven by this whole notion that I was Harvey's first Asian victim. Uh -huh. Because I remember speaking in a book club last night, actually, to a group of Asian women. And we talked about how all of us want to be set free from cultural and racial stereotyping. That if you live in a minority in a majority culture, that's what you want. You don't want to be known for your dumplings and you don't want to be known for parents that make you want to be a doctor or a lawyer. You want to get away from right. stereotypes because you want to be able to say, I'm my own person. No, I'm not like a stereotypical British Chinese person. I'm Rowena Chu. Right. But that in spite of that, we can't deny those cultural stereotypes because they're pervasive. Right. And they d define our lives. 
And so I thought it was really interesting how I told my story. I wrote about it in the New York Times. For a split second there, it was my story. And as the journalists like to say, my voice was set free. There's all sorts of like, you know, cliches that they use about this. For a split second there, that was true. But as soon as my story was entered the public domain, it became, in fact, somebody else's story. Mm. It became public. It became, it didn't belong to me anymore. Yeah. I like to use the expression, it grew legs and walked away from me like a toddler. What would you say to pastors and church leaders who are listening to this about how you would wish they would be able to respond to survivors of sexual assault? Wow. That is a great question. That is a great question. And we're only just beginning this conversation, especially in Asian churches. Yeah. It is such a difficult area. Yeah. Imagine a community of people where sex is taboo. Yeah. You don't have sex before you get married. You don't talk about sex even if you are married, right? You, you know, if you are a married person, you don't talk about, you know, I'm struggling in my sexual relations with my wife. That is not discussed, right? Right. And then if you're a dating couple, you're not supposed to be having sex at all. So nobody discusses that because you're not supposed to be having it. Right. So then there's this difficult dichotomy, which every Asian church, I believe, is familiar with this dichotomy, where young people actually are having sex, <laughs> but they don't talk about it. Right. Because... You can't talk about it. Right. You're supposed to be pretending that you're not having sex. Mm-hmm. So I think this leads to a very difficult and uh, potentially dangerous situation, actually, where your young people aren't willing to come forward and be honest about their sex lives, whether within a dating relationship or a married relationship, never mind talking about some perversion of that relationship yeah. in a, a sexual assault or rape situation. Right. So if you can't talk about sex within your marriage, and if you can't talk about premarital sex within your dating life, how are you going to talk about the issues of sexual assault and rape? Right. If it happens to your young people, because it will, we've got to be honest and say that sexual assault and rape is much more prevalent in communities than we're aware of. Yeah. It's prevalent in the workplace. It's prevalent in domestic situations. And God forbid, it's sometimes prevalent in churches. Yeah. And if we're not honest about this, and if we don't stick up our heads and say, no, it's happening. It's happening at least in the society around our church, if not in our church itself. Then how can we even begin to address it? What would you say to someone who is an Asian American who has suffered as a victim of sexual assault and, and hasn't told anyone? Gosh, I would say that I know firsthand how immeasurably difficult it is to speak out. I didn't, famously, I didn't speak out for 20 years. And then when the rest of the world were, was speaking out, I did, still didn't. For another two years. Mm. So in many ways, my my story for so many decades was defined by silence. And so I know, I know deeply that the first instinct is to remain silent, to keep your head down, to be that model minority, to get on, don't make waves, don't make a fuss, move on with your life. Think that you can somehow brush it under the carpet and keep going. I think number one, it's really hard to brush it under the carpet and keep going, no matter how many years ago this assault took place, and no matter how much you try and persuade yourself, your life has yeah. moved on. I think if you don't reveal, shine light on these things, they'll always be there. Number two, if you then decide that you do want to shine light on these things, take the time, all the time you need. Yeah. Work within yourself to make sure that you are really ready to speak especially if you plan to go public about something, you know, famous or semi-famous. Yeah. Make sure that you have 
resolved issues within your own heart, but also set yourself up with the support network you need. Mm. Whether it's neat squaring things away with your parents, squaring things away with your own immediate circle, or squaring things away with your, you know, your husband and your kids, do that first. Because once you go public with a high-profile ac- ac- accusation like I have, it's almost impossible to, yeah. you can't turn the clock back. Right. You, it's still true if you're just planning to talk to your parents or your HR department. Mm. It's still, you know, speaking out has repercussions. So you have to make sure you're emotionally ready and that you have surrounded yourself with the people that matter most to you, that you know you can lean on for support in a time of crisis. Yeah. And then thirdly, I would say, don't feel that as an Asian and as a woman, that your story doesn't matter. Yeah. For a long time, I thought, oh, there's, you know, 80 other survivors and they've all got similar stories of hotel. Nobody needs another survivor. Yeah. But every voice is unique. And every story is different. And you might find surprising ways in which your story helps others. I was completely overwhelmed by the impact it had on the Asian American community. I didn't even think it was. Mm. I thought people would just say, oh, well, she's British Chinese. She's not relevant to us. Or, oh, well, here's just another story about Harvey. But I've been really encouraged by the number of women who've come forward to say that my voice has helped them. And representation matters. We all know this in theory, but... I've really been feeling it in the last five months because, you know, women of every hue within the Asian community have said, wow, there are no other Asians out there speaking about Harvey. And it it really makes a difference to them. And they're able to say to their daughters, look, there's somebody speaking about Harvey Weinstein that is Asian who is representing us. So after you wrote your op-ed, your life has changed. Your platform has changed. Do you ever regret it? I think that it is absolutely the right thing to do to speak out. There's a deep, deep personal cost to speaking out. Yeah. Even though I'm on the benign side of that in the sense that my death threats have been limited. I haven't been hounded from my home. And uh, save the usual sort of trolling, oh, you're a disgraceful Chinese woman or you're a money grabber or you are making this up for attention. I would say that the negative side of it has been somewhat limited, but it's still really stressful to be in the public eye. Yeah all the time, constantly, for something that is deeply personal and deeply traumatic. As we speak, Harvey Weinstein has finally made his way to Rikers. But there's, I mean, you and I even spoke about this online, about sort of the the mixed feeling of the verdict. Yes. What does his verdict say about our society, about the Me Too movement, and about our legal system? I've been asked many times since the verdict about my reactions. And it's funny because on the day itself, when the verdict came out, right from the beginning, I was hugely conflicted. Right. Uh, I think it's a difficult verdict to rejoice about because it's a partial conviction of two counts out of five. Right. And the more serious accounts of predatory sexual assault, he has been exonerated or acquitted of. Right. So that leaves, you know, these two other counts for which he'll receive between five to 29 years. On that day, there was an intense sense of rejoicing because I think what happened is that many of us survivors and society as a whole, I think, was bracing themselves for a a unanimous acquittal. Nobody believed. Mm. Nobody believed. I never believed that story would be published in the New York Times in October 2017. When Jodie Cantor came to my doorstep, I said to my husband, don't worry, she'll go away. She'll never get her story published or read. Nobody's going to want to know. Harvey's going to pay off the New York Times just like he does every other media outlet. As Ronan Farrow has written eloquently about. I didn't think that story would ever get published. And then when the story got published and we watched this Me Too movement rise and we watched all these other men in public life fall, Mm -hmm. it was a kind of 
of amazing moment. I never thought that would happen. And I still thought, oh, Harvey will never come to trial. He'll figure out a way of paying someone off. He'll have the Manhattan DA in his back pocket. You know, those of us who've worked for Harvey know his ways and we're pretty skeptical of, you know, how anything is ever going to happen. Nobody ever touches the rich and famous, right? Yeah. So it was amazing that he was brought to court. And then when he was brought to court, we all said to ourselves, oh, he'll just get acquitted because he'll be paying someone. So it's a sort of similar narrative where all along we're sort of apologizing for it and saying, oh, no, but it will never happen. And immediately after the verdict, Jezebel published a really interesting article that was entitled, Women are Conditioned to Expect Nothing. Mm. And it's a, a really damning edict on society, really, where women are constantly apologizing for taking up space. And they constantly say they're bracing themselves for defeat. As I heard many of the survivors do, they were already preparing themselves. They were saying, well, of course, you know, it's going to be very hard to get a conviction based on these cases. And, you know, I think we've really come a long way and we've done so much, even if he doesn't end up in jail. And I even caught myself saying this, kind of apologizing, even before the verdict, long before the verdict was out. I was kind of mentally preparing myself for an acquittal Mm. and mentally excusing society. So I think on that day, I felt this overwhelming sense of relief as every victim must. Right. Wow. He's he's always going to go down in history now as a convicted rapist. Yeah. Isn't that astonishing? Even just saying that sentence, yeah. I don't believe it because for me, it's the end of a 22-year journey mm. to get some kind of justice for what Harvey did to me when I was merely 24. Yeah. So the fact that he's now a convicted rapist and behind bars and Rikers seems like an alternate reality that we would never, we were never going to live through. And so the, you know, and it's, and I marveled at the, these six women that took the stand were incredibly brave. They, they were eviscerated. They were yeah. torn to shreds up there. Yeah. So, so they are, you know, the first accolade must go to them because they paid the deepest price. And then behind them is this circle of, at the time, 108 accusers. So 102, I guess, if you take the six of them away. But the rest of the accusers. But it wasn't just over 100 women that spoke out against Harvey, but we also needed that support network of journalists, of lawyers, of PR agents, of publicists that told the story in the media in the first place and then kept that story going so that, you know, this trial could come to pass, so the public pressure to get this trial to come to pass. So I think that the amount of work that it's taken the Me Too movement cumulatively to bring Harvey to justice is staggering and a real testament of the support that all of these women who've all played their different roles have provided for one another. So that makes me very hopeful about humanity. Right. But the other side of it is, wow, when you look at the strength of these women, you've got to mirror that with the frailty of the legal system. Yeah. The legal system is so screwed up. It is so much in favor of the perpetrator, of the attacker. Mm. It protects, you know, powerful, rich, white men predominantly. Yeah. It is written by powerful, rich, white men and designed to protect powerful, rich, white men. It's The law is especially rape law and sexual assault law, is part of the system of patriarchy that we're attempting to dismantle. And so I think when you witness the bravery of the women that testified, you see at the same time what they had to go through, what the law makes them go through to get to a point where we can convict. And you think, wow, we've got to do work to change the legal system. Right the way from issues like forced arbitration, mandatory arbitration as you sign a contract to join a company, to the idea that NDAs can be weaponized in a workplace situation to cover up any kind of sexual assault that takes place in the workplace. I mean, that is appalling. 
all the way down to the difficulties of bringing a rape case forward and bringing it to criminal court and getting a conviction. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. Harvey's behind bars, but everybody has their own piece of the puzzle, charges on with the work that they're doing to, to get, make things different for the next generation. Five months ago, your life looked very different than what it looks like now. For 20 years, you suffered in silence and now you are thrust into the public forum and giving interview after interview about your experience, about this case, about these issues in the public space. Yeah. I guess the question is, how are you doing? <laughs> your life is so different than it was five months ago. How are you? I think I'm doing all right, all things considered. I <laughs> was really worried about, I mean, we talked a lot now about the impact on my family. Yeah. They're doing great. They're doing great. The kids are doing so great. I spend a lot of time traveling. I always take my little one, who's now two and a half. He's doing great. Uh -huh. I joke about the fact he's my emotional support toddler. Sure. He travels everywhere with me. <laughs> but he is, although I joke about that, he is in many ways a reminder to me as I go around and give interviews about a very dark subject and about a very dark time in my life that I have a family and that I have prevailed. I live in California with my husband and my four kids. My kids are great and they yeah. bring me joy every day. And one can get caught up in the need for retribution and the need for justice, which is all very worthy. I join them in their pursuit of that. But at the same time, it can eat you from the inside out yeah. as well. And so I, I want to remember that all the days I spend in the California sunshine where I'm playing with my kids in a sandpit, they are a victory too that I don't need a conviction that sends him to Rikers. Just living my life and being alive, surviving the two suicide attempts and building my family and being with my four kids is already a way of saying to Harvey, I've forgotten you and moved on. So much of the Me Too movement has been about the disempowering of the voices of victims of sexual assault. But what's so encouraging to hear in Rowena's story is how so many people were empowering the voices of victims. And that's what I hope to do today through this podcast, amplify Rowena's voice to reach more and more people, to encourage some, to teach church leaders, and to challenge all of us to find ways to empower the voices of victims. If you'd like to follow Rowena on Twitter, you can find her at Rowena underscore Chu. And I would really encourage you to read her op-ed in the New York Times and the She Said book that was referenced in the podcast. I'll put the links in the show notes for you. Thanks so much for listening to The Pursuit. I can't thank you enough for subscribing. And if you haven't already, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. It helps others to be able to find the show. Everyone, please stay safe, wash your hands, keep your distance, and pray for your healthcare workers. Now, as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. Because he's two and a half, so when he met Ronan Farrow, he's like, I don't care if you're the son of Woody Allen or Frank Sinatra, I just care if you have snacks in your pockets. <laughs> <laughs>